A changed life is powerful in lives yet to be changed. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ really revolutionizes broken and sinful people. Sinful pursuits weaken after encountering God's powerful grace in the gospel, and all of a sudden, truth becomes very vivid, very, very vivid. The gospel becomes very real and clear, and life is never the same. Jesus changes lives, amen? And that cannot be ignored by the world. He changes lives to run on a different fuel. The fuel that once gave us energy and motivated us all of a sudden doesn't work in our lives anymore. Instead, honoring God becomes the fuel of life. If you haven't checked out the website, IamSecond.com, IamSecond.com, you need to. It is a website that uh, features these short video testimonies of people who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, you might recognize some of the names from the site. Scott Hamilton, the, uh, the Olympic, uh, famous Olympic figure skater, the Robertsons from Duck Dynasty, Tony Dungy, the former NFL uh, football coach, Kathy Ireland, who was a, a former supermodel, uh, Daryl Waltrip, a NASCAR champion, tons and tons of people that have been impacted by Jesus Christ and are walking with him now. And now God is using their personal testimonies through the internet and through video to impact people, many of whom have yet to be changed by the gospel. A testimony of God's powerful grace in your life can be incredibly fruitful in the lives of people who have yet to be changed by His grace. But the people need to hear the story. They need to hear how God's truth and God's gospel has totally revolutionized your life. God uses the people that he changes. God uses the people that he changes. If you remember from verse 8, the disciples had gone into town to buy food. Jesus was talking privately with this Samaritan woman by the well. His disciples returned at just the right moment. Jesus had said to the Samaritan woman, I who speak to you am. I am. And that was unheard of. And it says they marveled that he was talking with a woman because other Jewish rabbis uh, didn't waste their time talking with women. That's not something that they would have done. In fact, some could have accused Jesus of being evil because his time was taken away from studying the Torah according to that, that Jewish thought of the day. Well, rabbis just didn't talk to women. Jesus did. Jesus did. The disciples didn't ask the woman, what do you seek? And they didn't ask Jesus, why are you talking with her? They just stood back and marveled at what was happening before their eyes. Jesus was so different than any other rabbi of the day. He treated women and children and outcasts with respect and with dignity. He spoke truth to them. No one did more for women's rights and human dignity than Jesus Christ in all of history. Then something interesting happened, verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. She left her water jar. She left it behind. 
For one, probably because she wanted Jesus to finally get that drink that he was asking for. That drink of water from her water vessel. And probably because she was coming right back. She wasn't going to be away for very long. And she hadn't even drawn the water yet that she had come to draw. I think at that point, the water probably became unimportant. And don't forget the life of this woman. She was living in sin and had a poor reputation. So isn't it odd that all of a sudden, she is excited to go into town and to start talking to everyone? Um, after having her life supernaturally laid out in the open by a complete stranger, the stranger now tells her, I am the Messiah. I am God. This was the epic moment of her life. Her joy and her excitement and her anticipation took her back into town, carried her confidently back into town to recount something remarkable for the townspeople. She said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did who laid my life bare, who laid me open. Can this, can this be the Christ? God uses the people he changes. God uses the people he changes. God led this woman back to town. I found this one study note particularly interesting. The witness of the woman was more effective than the witness of the 12 apostles. All they did was pick up food. What were they doing in town? If not talking, hey, come see this rabbi that we're with. You're going to want to meet this guy. No, they just picked up the food. Why was this woman different? This woman had encountered God. The gospel in Jesus, who happened to ignore all social mores in order to talk truth with her. And that meant something to her. In fact, that meant the world to her, and it changed her life. Friends, when Jesus Christ changes your life, you will talk about him with some level of excitement. It's just going to flow from you because you've been impacted by him. See, grace has a way of loosening the lips. God has changed you in part to deploy you to impact others for him. In verse 31, John leaves the town scene, leaves leaves the woman and the town, and he heads back to the well, to the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And the conversation acts as a sort of preface for when the woman and the townspeople are going to come back to the well. And so this kind of prepares the pump, so to speak. Accomplishing God's will was the sustenance and strength of Jesus Christ. Accomplishing God's will was the sustenance and strength of Jesus Christ. Now, can we just all agree that we love to eat, right? We love to eat. And food, oftentimes for us, is a celebrity. It's like when it shows up, everybody is excited that the food is here. You know, bring it in. It's here. Can I get a picture with the food? You know, um, food even stars in a bunch of TV shows and movies, right? It's like the center stage. And and food is necessary for our lives. It's part of every culture, a very important part of every culture. Our bodies need fuel. Hunger is the body's physical way of telling us that it needs fuel. I need some energy here. But we also have desires that are stronger than hunger or physical desires. Jesus taught that our spiritual need is greater than the physical desire for food. And that's significant because if we don't eat, we die. 
We need to eat. So this is saying something very significant about our spiritual hunger. Physical desires are so strong in our lives that they can sometimes control us, rule over us. Our physical desires can become so strong that we become enslaved to those desires. We crave sleep and food and drink and sex and adrenaline And these can quickly master us, and yet more than all of these is our spiritual craving, our spiritual hunger. And Jesus showed that his desire to serve and obey God was greater than his desire to eat food. Now, this is sending a really powerful message to us. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat, you got to eat. Jesus was probably really hungry. That would be totally understandable for a guy who traveled from Jerusalem to Samaria on on ragged, uh, rough, rugged terrain. So it's time to eat. Now, I've done the 30-hour famine event a bunch of times in my life, would take students through this event, and we would fast for 30 hours in order to raise money for impoverished children around the world through World Vision. And so these all-nighter weekends were jam-packed with activities. I mean, we would just go around the clock. And, uh, and meanwhile, you're doing all this physical activity and you're not eating anything. I mean, some of you are like, this sounds like a nightmare. And it was. No. I'm... So you're not eating anything. And, and one time, we even busted a kid who was grabbing a candy bar from the machine. And it's like, we're fasting for little kids who don't have anything to eat. What's wrong with you? But anyway, after fasting for 30 hours, we then ate a meal together at the end of the event. And when you ate that meal, the food was delicious, even if it was rice and beans. Sometimes we would just have a simple meal, but when you're eating this, you're like, oh my goodness, this is really good. And uh, so our need for food, like we know this, it's intense. We want to eat and it just tastes delicious. And so we crave that. And here his disciples are urging him, Rabbi, you got to eat, man. And yet he didn't really seem too concerned about eating. Why? What was going on? Verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. All right, Jesus, you're holding out on us. Where's your stash of Twinkies? You know, you've got a backpack somewhere. Where are you hiding your lunchbox, man? You've got some food that we don't know about. Where's the beef jerky? Get it out. And his disciples said to each other in verse 33, has anyone brought him something to eat? So they're thinking, okay, maybe when they were in town buying food that Jesus then came or or people came to Jesus and maybe somehow gave him the food. But where is it? Is he hiding it? What's the deal here? What's he talking about? Where is it? Jesus masterfully used common things from life that people understood, they identified with, to express profound spiritual truth that people oftentimes misunderstood. Jesus was a skillful teacher, the most skillful teacher. He said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And if you have your biblical radar on, you're starting to think food that we don't know what the identity is, we don't know it, it it, it will take you back to manna. If you remember in the Old Testament, it sounds similar to manna that God gave his people in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses said to the people, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. So uh, he gave 
Israel manna in the wilderness, and they ask the question, what is it? We don't know what this is. What, what is this bread, this food from heaven? And the rest of verse 3 is really cool. He humbled you and let your, you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make, known, make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes. Manna was to point to this fact that we are dependent upon God's word. The word of God gives life. The word of God sustains us. The word of God nourishes us with life-sustaining energy and power. God allowed Israel to be hungry and fed Israel with mysterious bread from heaven to humble them, to humble them, and to remind them that there is energy greater than bread, a sustenance more powerful than food, and it is the word of God. In verse 34, Jesus explained what food he was referring to that they didn't know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus said on another occasion, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The food that nourished and strengthened Jesus most was obeying his father. Obeying his father. Accomplishment fueled Jesus. Completed work fueled Jesus. What work? God the Father sent His Son on mission to accomplish eternal life for God's chosen people. In John 6, 38-40, Jesus explained this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That is what Jesus came to accomplish. Understand what Jesus means. He didn't come to do what He decided. He came to do what was already decided. The will of the Father for Jesus was to not lose anyone that the Father gave to Jesus. And do not miss the massive truth of God's sovereign grace in this passage. D.A. Carson wrote, There exists a group of people who have been given by the Father to the Son, and this group was inevitably, will inevitably, come to the Son and be preserved by Him. The Father presented Jesus a people, a people. And Jesus was to secure their eternal life and not lose even one of them. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He will not lose any of those that the Father has given to him. He will absolutely raise them on the last day. The life-consuming work of Jesus was, as Luke 19.10 says, to seek and to save the lost. To actually save them. To actually secure them and preserve people by His divine grace and power. Jesus is saying to His disciples in John 4.34, My sustenance and strength 
come from the word of God given to me. It's doing God's will that feeds me. It's accomplishing God's work that sustains me. That is so much more energizing to me than any food you guys bought in the, Samar- in the Samaritan town. That's what he was saying. Think about that. Doing God's will and work was more gratifying for Jesus than eating. Than eating. If we miss a meal, we become snarling beasts. Amen? If not you, kids, take food away. They're little beasts. And Jesus, on the other hand, is so motivated by obedience. It satisfies him. He craves to honor his father so others can see a desire in him that was so much more um, intense than eating food after a long journey from Jerusalem to Samaria. Jesus is more than a good example for us to follow. By perfectly doing the will of God and accomplishing the work of God, Jesus was doing for us what we could not do for ourselves We fail to do the will of God. We fail to do the work of God and accomplish what he wants us to. But Jesus did everything we can't and won't do. He did everything God required, and in so doing, he secured eternal life for everyone whom the Father gave him, who believes in him, who trusts in him. Jesus didn't go into the town with his disciples to to get food because he had a divine appointment with the Samaritan woman, and that appointment was food for him. The food of saving a broken Samaritan woman and then deploying her to go into the town and reach other Samaritans. Rather than being fed, Jesus fed the Samaritans and proved to be for them the bread of life. When his disciples were worrying all about him eating, Jesus was giving eternal life, giving eternal life. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat. Is not life more than food? Then in verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus continues, verses 31 and 33, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is something more important than what you're going to eat today. It's the kingdom and righteousness of God. More than looking for your next meal, look first to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus did that. And we're grateful that he did, not only because we need an example to follow in our lives, but because we need a savior to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, namely God's perfect will and work. What if we savored obedience more than food in our lives? Man, what, what would it look like? So let's watch this incredible harvest that Jesus and the, the woman labored for. Jesus has the power and truth to produce a great harvest. Jesus has the power and truth to produce an incredible, bountiful harvest. 
Jesus said in verse 35, Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, look, disciples. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, some say that this probably occurred in December or January um, because it happened four months prior to the harvest that would have come mid-April. And uh, so that would have been four months away. Either way, however you understand it, Jesus draws attention to a gap between when you sow and when you harvest. He's, he's, He's looking at that gap. And in a short time of sowing spiritual seed, he's saying we're reaping harvest right right away. It's coming. It's already here. Not only were they surrounded by fields where they were, but across those fields coming from town were Samaritans. The harvest was, was literally coming across the field to them. Jesus essentially said, look up. Open your eyes and see into the fields as all the Samaritans are coming to me from the town. They are ready for harvest. The spiritual soul harvest is now, disciples. Many are about to place their trust in me. The fields are white for harvest. Jesus continues in verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. So Jesus had just sown truth in this woman's life, and she became the spiritual harvest. She then went into town and sowed the truth. Now the town is coming as the harvest. They are the harvest. Jesus sowed and reaped all at once. It is time to rejoice. Jesus was already experiencing fruit from evangelism. He was receiving reward due him. The rejoicing together shows how a reaper and sower can at the same time rejoice for the spiritual harvest. Sowing and reaping are now done simultaneously. You share the gospel and at the same time you see the gospel produce fruit in people's lives. Now, years before this Samaritan adventure of Jesus and the disciples, Amos prophesied about a coming messianic age of great abundance. And this is what Amos prophesied. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman, imagine the the guy plowing the field, shall overtake the reaper And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. This incredible sweetness of abundance and prosperity is coming when the plowman doing his work is doing such rapid work that he overtakes the reaper, and the one treading the grapes is now overtaking the one who sows the seed. And it's just this agricultural boom and prosperity. The moment you take the crop, you sow other seed because it just keeps growing. One moment you're scattering seed for grapes and and shortly thereafter you're making wine and growing more new grapes. This is what agriculture looks like without sin affecting it. It's bountiful. And Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. The Messiah had brought abundant and bountiful eternal life. Jesus continues, verses 37 and 38, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Understand that Jesus is talking about a spiritual harvest, spiritual sowing and reaping. One scatters gospel seed, and the next reaps that harvest of people who come to Christ in faith. Now here the disciples are ready to reap a harvest of people that they didn't do anything for. They did nothing. Jesus sowed the seed of the gospel into this woman. She sowed the seed of the gospel in the town. And now the harvest is coming across the field to Jesus and his disciples. Now the others might be broader than Jesus and the woman. It might refer to Old Testament prophets who certainly prepared the way for Jesus. It might refer to John the Baptist who absolutely scattered some gospel seed to prepare the way for Jesus. But however broad that goes, I think it does talk about Jesus and the woman sowing and then here comes the harvest. The gospel was producing abundant harvest. Sometimes, my friends, you, you gotta keep sowing the seed. You may not see the harvest right away. You've got to keep scattering the gospel seed out there. Maybe for years before you see the harvest. You might never see the harvest. But you've got to keep scattering the gospel on your friends. But sometimes when you scatter the seed, you see immediate change in someone's life. They're converted. They come to Christ. And their life is just absolutely turned around. People get saved. Lives change. We can be reaping and sowing all at the same time. We're putting the gospel seed out and someone gets saved and we harvest. And we just keep going according to the sovereign grace of God in people's lives. Wouldn't it be incredible if we began to scatter the gospel more faithfully to our friends and coworkers and family? What if God decided in his sovereign will, to give us an incredible harvest. Now, he might not. There's no guarantee. But what if he did? What if we began to see people outside of our walls, in our communities, people that we love, people that we know, in relationship, what if they start coming to Christ? And their lives are just changed. What if God gave you the privilege of harvesting, of seeing People come to know Christ. It's a dream of mine. To see people awaken under the gospel and be saved. When just yesterday they were like, no, don't really think the God thing is up. Boom, gospel hits them and they just change. I long to see that. And we might not even do much of the work. We might just get to harvest because other people laid down that foundation of gospel truth. Imagine if your friends just started to get saved and how much impact you could have. So God, please produce a harvest through us. Don't you want that? Uh, Make us a sowing and harvesting church. I want to do some harvesting too. But if God says, no, you're not going to harvest, then I want to do some sowing. You know, just do it for God's glory. We don't know what God's going to do through our church long term. We don't know what fruit the gospel might bring for us, but we must trust God and we must keep scattering the seed. When we plan the church picnic for this coming year, we need to strategize of how to scatter more gospel. Scatter that gospel. When we look to disguise and prize in the fall, let's strategize how to scatter more gospel. We need to think beyond ourselves to a field that is white for harvest. 
Now, I want to see Matthew 9, 37 and 38 actually happen. Here's what it says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, they're few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Are you ready to work to harvest together so we can harvest? We've got to do the work. God will bless by his sovereign grace. We must show up and, and, and be the hands and feet. There's something really satisfying in harvesting a crop and experiencing the joy and abundance of it. It's time to sow the gospel to potentially yield a big harvest. So I just want to stop in the middle of, of my sermon here to obey Matthew 9, 37, and 38. So we're going to pray for this. Okay, let's pray. God, we just pause right now to pray that Matthew 9, 37, and 38 happens. We want to be obedient to this. So we know the harvest out there is white. It's plentiful. But there are very few people who are ready to go out into that harvest and to harvest it. So God, we are praying together as a church earnestly that you send out laborers into your harvest. Raise up people with a passion to talk gospel with others and to go and to reap a harvest. Bring people to salvation in Christ through our church. We're praying for it and we know we can't make it happen until you bless us with this. So we're just pleading, asking you to do your will by sending out those from our church. God, maybe we're gonna be a church that'll plant a church someday. Maybe we'll be a church that actually raises up missionaries from among us to go out into that harvest. Who knows what's coming, God, but we pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. The impact of truth and a changed life on lives that need to be changed is truly incredible. Don't undercut it. Verse 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. God used the true testimony of a broken, adulterous, idolatrous Samaritan woman, changed by grace, to lead other Samaritans to Jesus. She was a successful evangelist through the reality and truth of her own testimony. They believed because of her words that she spoke to them. He told me all that I ever did. God powerfully used her gospel testimony to bring others to him. The intent of a personal testimony, a personal story of the life-changing grace and power of Jesus is to ultimately lead people to the truth of God's word, the gospel. Our personal testimonies of how God saved us should be saturated with the word of God, his truth. Um, put, put meat to the story by showing how his word has been fulfilled in your life. And faith is set in motion by a logical, coherent language, sp- the spoken word of God. This town was so taken by Jesus, they invited him to stay with them, and he did, which was just so mind-blowing. And during that short time, Jesus taught them the truth. He revealed the gospel to them, And verse 41 says, many more believed because of his word. Yes, people did believe because of what the woman said, but many more believed because of what Jesus did to teach them. 
These Samaritans encountered Jesus themselves. It wasn't simply about, hey, this, this rabbi guy made a difference in this woman, and I can clearly see that. She's just a different person. It went way beyond that. It was the gospel penetrating their own lives. His word convinced them, so much so that they just told the woman, you know, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus has changed them. Are you listening to Jesus? Has he spoken directly by his gospel, a powerful word, into your life? Doesn't matter what your parents did. Doesn't matter what your kids are. Doesn't matter how long you've been in church. Has he spoken the truth into your heart that you believe for yourself because of how convincing the case for Christ is? There's something important here. When they said Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, understand the significance of that. The Savior of the world, spoken from Samaritans. Not only was salvation for the Jews, as we saw Nicodemus get saved in chapter 3, but salvation is for the Samaritans and the nations. Jesus told the woman in verse 22 that salvation is from the Jews, and so it was, but salvation was for more than the Jews It was for the nations. In a few years, Jesus would tell his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the hub of Jews, okay? And in Judea as it's scattering and in Samaria as it it scatters even more. And then he says, and to the end of the earth. Paul said years later in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then what does he say? And also to the Greek. It's for the nations. The gospel is for the nations. Jesus truly is the savior of the world or the savior of those from every nation and every tribe and every people group. What we have seen these last uh, three weeks is the gospel's incredible power to impact a broken woman's life, a woman that God used to impact her entire town. Can you see how the truth changed one woman's life, which God then used to truly change so many lives that needed to be changed? Can you see that in the passage? Can you see that in John? Making a difference in the world for Jesus Christ has nothing to do with how qualified you are to make a difference, with how exceptional with, uh, that you are, how much of a spiritual superstar you are. I believe the key to making a difference for God is being changed by His amazing grace and joyfully spreading what so radically and dynamically changed you. The gospel of Jesus Christ. People changed by God's grace have an insatiable appetite for advertising the grace that changed them. That they continually taste in their life. And they know it's good. And so they're excited about that. They're excited to promote the gospel because of the continual impact that it has on them and the pure power and wonder of God's grace itself. It is time that we as a church sit together at a banquet table of God's will and feast upon obedience to his will. Our church loves to eat together, and that's awesome. But more than that, let's be a church that enjoys doing God's will together. 
enjoys being obedient and accomplishing something by the power of his grace in us. Let's join hands and do some hard work for Christ by the power of the Spirit in us. That should fuel us more than anything else. The field is white for harvest. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks for how much you have changed our lives, how much you have helped us. Um, You have spoken truth to us in your holy word. And we have heard because you have opened our ears to hear. We have tasted and experienced that you are good because you gave us that gift. This is sovereign grace that we rejoice in. And so God, this morning, I pray that you motivate our church to go because the harvest is white. It's plentiful. And if we can join churches, uh, other churches all around the world to be faithful to the gospel, God, what harvest you might bring in our midst. We don't know. We don't know that. You do. And so we just trust you and the power of your grace and ask that you use us to sow some seed. And then we also ask that you use us to do some harvesting. And we see lives changed by the gospel. God, help us to be that kind of church. A sowing and a reaping church. And a joyful church. And a church that rejoices in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.